Greetings, this is Kurt. This is a continuation of the third and largest portion of Book One, Enchanter's Lot. If this is your first visit to the Harkin Theater, we recommend you step back and find the first episode of Prelude, The Hostage Prince. Otherwise, make yourself comfortable as we continue the performances. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and share on your favorite platform. Comments and questions directed to our email will be answered promptly. If you care to be a preferred audience member and help in keeping these complex productions coming, please buy me a coffee via the website coffee.com listed with the description of each episode. And thank you for listening. Who is responsible for that horrible sound? Speak up! Apologies, Maestro. Just a little jam in me double horn. <laughs> Keep your jam in the double jar. Ready? Ready to lift the game! Step through the gateway and enter the universe of the Harkin Theater. This is Episode 4. The Harkin Theater presents the sound plays of A Bridge of Doom by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Book One, Part Three, Enchanter's Lot. Open your eyes. We are safe for now. Gawan, Flaina, Thasgar, and Gon found themselves in the old forest spreading before the familiar, crumbling, overgrown archway of the lost city set in the side of a mountain. Over their heads, a sparse canopy of tree branches were silhouetted against the starry dome. They were far away from Queen Vyrie. For a long moment, everyone simply stood silently. The vines and weeds encroaching on the entrance to the lost city rustled and shook, as if the mountain shuddered, glad to be rid of the event. Too stunned by the rapid change to do anything other than stand and stare, Gawan wondered how such beauty could be so hideous underneath. His gut went cold at the thought of sharing love with that two-headed monster in human form. Thasgar and Gon, meanwhile, disoriented by the sudden change in their location, peered uneasily up at the night sky, still expecting a holocaust to rain down upon them. At Gon's feet lay Clough, still unconscious. Flaina touched Gawan's arm. Are you all right? It seemed to her that for a moment, back at the ledge, 
Everything had slowed while Vairi had first gestured to Gaewan, then abruptly cursed him. A longer interchange must have occurred, but she had heard or seen nothing. The enchanter was unresponsive to her touch as he frowned, lost in silent meditation. Gaewan? Allow him time to work out what Vairi did to him. The half-elf turned to see the King of Dragons standing alone, his four escorts absent, his gaze intent upon her. What did she do? Toyed with his mind. His mind? She tested him with a favorite illusory trap of hers, a sort of temptation. She failed, fortunately for him. Flana, is there anything we can do for Clough? He's still out. Clough? Gawain snapped out of his mental wanderings, turned and knelt beside his friend, then touched a hand to his brow. His skin felt cold. Flana also knelt, pressing her hands to Clough's throat and heart. I feel the smallest of pulses, but I know nothing of his malady. He was raped psychically. Gawan was not sure of how to remedy the effects of possession of this magnitude, but he had an idea. Where is his sword? He feared it was left behind on the cliff. Thasgar raised his hand, the weapon clutched within a wad of rags. I grabbed it just before that witch woman came. Damned thing's too hot to hold. The enchanter's eye sparkled hopefully. Good. Give it to me. What are you going to do? The lanky archer glanced at the King of Dragons, who remained silent and observant. Why is it so hot? He handed the weapon hilt first to Gawain. This is Infinity, a power sword wielded only by one who attunes himself to it, becomes a part of it. The archer shook his head. Uh, I know nothing of this Infinity sword except that it gives off light when wicked things are near. So I'll ask again, why is it hot? Consider moving a candle's flame from one wick to another. When Clough was forced away from his body, his spirit had to go somewhere safe. Thasgar nodded with a wry grimace. I knew religion might have something to do with it. You're saying Clough's soul is in his sword? In a manner of speaking. If I were a believer of the ancients, I'd call it wicked haunts, black sorcery. Aye, many would. What are you going to do? Gon liked Clough and trusted Gawain, even though magic was strange to him. But what Gawain and Thasgar were discussing confused him. Open a gateway and hope his spirit goes back into his body. Oh, oh. He placed Clough's hands at rest on his sternum, then put the sword lengthwise over his torso. Everyone watched quietly and waited for a sign of life. With a scowl, Gon peered over at Durbriag. A god who stepped out of the sky like legends of old just stands there. He's a king with great powers, yet he does nothing. He is a king of dragons, Gon. Gawan checked Clough's pulse. He has only taken human form so as to better communicate with us. He has no cause to assist men. But why is he here? Because his sphere was disturbed by the stopping of time, and he came to investigate, just as Vairi. 
He frowned at the lack of change in his love brother's body and wondered what else could be done as he sifted through all the knowledge Clough had shared with him about the Freethinkers and the Power Swords. He knew Clough's spirit could not have been destroyed. The silver cord connecting spirit to the physical shell was broken only when both were separated completely. From Agarkala's rantings while in the elf's body, he gathered that Clough had been psychically subdued, not extinguished, and the sword's radiant heat was evidence of where his spirit had fled. But how to call him back? Exasperated with his lack of knowledge, he sat back on his haunches and rested his hands on his hips. <sighs> Damn it all! Warmth pulsing from his waist made Gaewan look down at where his dagger, the companion to Clough's sword, was sheathed. Hmm. He carefully grasped the hilt and removed the blade. Perhaps like making fire, I have forgotten the flint on which to strike the steel. He laid the dagger flat across his palm. Clough, I call thee to wake with the secret word of the blades then slapped it across the sword on Clough's chest. A crackle and a blaze of white light flashed between his hand and the weapon, bringing with it a scorching pain shooting through his body like lightning from his palm. Thazgar ah! yanked Plena and Gon back. back. Beneath the enchanter's hand, Clough's body jerked as he grasped the sword's hilt. In one swift, continuous motion, he shoved Gawan aside, rolled over in the dirt, and stood. Shivering violently, he aimed his sword at the sky and opened tortured eyes. His body still reverberating from the transfer of spirit from the blades to Clough's body, Gawan could only sit where he had been shoved as he watched his friend. Light, bright, and golden erupted from his sword's point and shimmered down to envelop Clough in a moving sphere of radiant fire. His body shook and gyrated wildly, making Gawan fear he had gone mad. But then he slowed and gained control with heaving breaths as he made deliberate motions with his arms and legs. The Dance of Waters, Gawan recognized, one of the many exercises Clough practiced with his art of sword fighting. <laughs> he struggled to control his tongue, concentrating on his mouth's every movement. Never, never shall another force me from my right. The sword flashed brightly as the mountains echoed his vow, then fell to a dull reflection of the starlight. Clough slumped to his knees, utterly fatigued. No one moved, everyone waiting for him to gather himself. The enchanter crawled over, sat beside him, and held his shoulders with an arm. Clough grasped his other hand and squeezed tightly. Are you all right? Dropping his sword, the elf embraced his friend. My physical shell, my body, my heart, mine, then sagged in Gawan's arms. I'm all right, I think. That was quite a display, my friend. Perhaps you should wear the mantle of Enchanter. 
Clough leaned back and regarded him with a raised eyebrow, then grinned despite the cold sweat beaded on his brow. Nay, I'll keep the sword and leave all the hard stuff to you as usual. Thanks, I think. The dwarf came up to the two men huddled on the ground. Uh, if you two are comfortable sitting there, I'll build a fire beside you. I'm getting hungry. Gaywan clapped a comradely hand on Gan's shoulder. Excellent suggestion, my friend. I just wish we had some wine or trisk, but all our skins are dry. Search your pack again, my good fellow. Durbriag stepped up with a broad smile. I think you overlooked one. His beard bristling, mm. Gon turned a skeptical glance between Gaewan and the King of Dragons. <laughs> Go! I do not tell fables, and I wish a warm fire as well. He jumped at the command and scampered off to poke around in his pack again. The King turned to Thasgar. Have you a sturdy axe? Aye. Come then. He headed into the forest. There's a fallen tree nearby that will make an easy fire. The archer unshouldered his pack, unstrapped an axe, and followed Durbriag. Patting his loved brother on the back, Gaewan stood up and stretched. Flaina came up and touched his shoulder, searching his eyes with hers when he turned to look at her. She saw tiredness, both body and mind, and pleasure at her touch. Herself, Flaina felt numb from the incredible chain of events that had befallen them all at once. And now, the uncertainty, the fear of losing either Gaewan or the others, of being lost in the repulsive underground, was eased mercifully, a terrible burden lifting from her heart. She embraced him snugly. Gods, I was scared in there. Me too. Nearby, Gon discovered a familiar, buoyant bulge deep in his pack, and he pulled out a full skin of Trisk. Ha ha! Me life's blood! Ah. Not far away could be heard the chop of Thasgar's axe. Gawon, meanwhile, indulged himself in his hug with Flaina, filling a strange emptiness left behind after his interchange with Vyree. With eyes shut, he nuzzled her hair, enjoying her scent. <clears throat> Suddenly, Vyrie's half-naked body was before him again, glowing with lust. She never know, Enchanter. Take me and make me yours. The emptiness in his gut expanded, and he realized what was happening. She was taunting, intruding on him when he was weakest, trying again to snare him. Dredging up the few remaining fibers of will left to him, he fought against her tug on his consciousness. The fingers of his mind weakened against her titanic power. It was as if she tried to drag him back to that secret cave where she had first tempted him. Mm -mm. Flaina made sounds of quiet discomfort as he hung on to her tightly. Mm -mm. He couldn't let go, couldn't let her win. Help! Vyrie's grip melted like a squall retreating before the summer suns, and the emptiness in his stomach receded. He eased his arms from around the half-elf. I will have you, or you will die. Flaina stopped singing and looked into his face. 
What happened? <sighs> Vairi. He closed his eyes wearily for a moment, then opened them again, afraid her image might reappear in his mind. <sighs> she was trying again. Knowing better than to press him for an explanation at this moment, she hugged him close. Are you all right now? <sighs> yes, but only because of you. Why did you chant the holy name? She shrugged in his embrace. It felt as if something was scaring you, so I did what my mother taught me to do whenever something scared me. Though her explanation was touching, it reminded him of his own mother, long dead by mysterious causes with the rest of his family. He dashed away the too familiar unpleasant ache in his heart. Thank you, love, then kissed her tenderly. Gan ceased scratching his tinderbox as a spark caught on some dry tinder. He watched the couple with silent approval. Their kiss was interrupted by the sound of a curious owl over their heads, and they looked up to see Cluff clinging lightly to a tree branch, his arms dangling freely. He grinned mischievously. Hark, I have found fairies kissing in the forest. Gawan released Flaina and rested a hand on his hip as he regarded his love brother. Glad to see you're feeling better. How do we come to be fairies, and you're the one with so much air in his head that you float and have to hang on to a tree to keep from flying higher? Watch thy tongue, fairy lips, or I might fall on you. And what would you do if I stepped out of your way? I'd hurt. A spark flew up from Gan's smoldering tinder. Jerking reflexively at the distraction, Clough lost his grip and flailed uselessly for other branches out of reach. He toppled toward the couple beneath. Flaina jumped back as Gawan stepped forward to catch Clough in his arms. Oh, oh my chest. Oh. He moaned from under his friend, feeling what closure his wounds had achieved tearing open again. Oh, my rear. Clough had hit the enchanter's knees square with his bottom. Gods! Flaina knelt beside them. You two are impossible. Kind of you to join us. Clough rolled off Gaylon and rubbed his rear. Hey, what you sitting over there for? I'm building a fire over here. Chapter 4 <clears throat> Gon took another hungry mouthful of biscuit and dried meat. What I want to know, uh, Sir Derbriag, is uh, why you didn't help Clough. Gawan explained it well, I thought. Only partly. If I had intervened, Vyrie would have detected my powers at work and might have appeared again to grace all with her benevolence. As it was, she was fooled in any attempt at following us here. How? That ledge on which we stood was not strong enough to hold her weight in dragon form. It started to break when she changed. And, of course, attempting to take her natural form while in my presence was a challenge for battle. My four consorts, plus the bronze in the cave, kept her occupied with her own well-being for a few moments. Ouch! Clough imagined five dragons assaulting one, though she was a spiteful two-headed one. She came out without a scratch, you can be sure. Mm, but didn't she know of Clough and his sword? 
Gon tore off another strip of meat. Vyrie is attuned to mine own person, not to men or elves. Gawan supposed Vyrie was also attuned to himself, but he didn't want to say anything. Perhaps he was wrong. There's that word tuned again. He chewed grumpily, his brown beard sprinkled with white biscuit crumbs. Tis like when you know of a fresh barrel of Trisk being opened in the tavern cellar before anyone else, Gon. Oh, oh, that I can understand. They were seated around a bright fire as they finished a simple but plentiful meal of cured meat and crumbly biscuits, the last of their food for the journey. While they ate, Thasgar and Clough played a game of knights and castles with sticks and pebbles in the dirt. Gon poked and fussed at the fire every so often between bites of his food, and Flaina and Gawan sat beside Durbriag, each nibbling at a handful of dried fruit as a finish to their portions of meat and salted bread. The trisk Gon shared with everyone was especially fruity and flavorful, a welcome relief from the stale water of the past few days, though Gon would have sworn he hadn't had any more. He eyed Durbriag with wary curiosity a couple of times over his cup, and, after considering the matter, decided a king of dragons deserved the prerogative for making stuff appear where there wasn't any before. Agarkala, Gawan met Durbriag's silver eyes. Who was he? The king gazed into the fire for a moment. Agarkala's tale would take most of the night to share with you and yet would serve nothing. I will make that long story bearable. Agarkala was a mage of long ago who succumbed to Vyrie's temptations. He cast a knowing glance at Gawan. Still shaken by her allurement, the enchanter had not the strength to hold that silvery gaze and looked away. Vyrie used him up magically, burned his psychic wick down to nothing, then used what was left of him to try killing me in order that she could rule all dragons. He failed, of course, and I chose to imprison his soul within that crystal as penance for his crime. There's more to it than that, of course. He saw Flaina's suspicious look. But he has deserved worse than what I have enforced upon him. Where is he now? Durbriag stared up beyond the canopy of tree branches. Somewhere in a small ruby buried under the rubble of the collapsed cliff. I doubt anyone will stumble across him ever again. You mean he's trapped in that gem forever? Not forever, no. The silvery eyes returned to the enchanter. When the lords of karma decide he has paid the price for his machinations, they will release him and send him on to another incarnation somewhere. Flaina's eyebrows lifted slightly. She found interest in this statement. It meant Durbriag was not omniscient by any means, and that he paid his dues just as any other soul for actions taken. She tossed back her hair gleaming reddish-brown in the firelight. But why didn't you simply bury him in the first place, instead of the elaborate arrangement of putting his soul in a stone guarded by a dragon held in a cave? 
The king appeared reluctant to reply as he shifted in his sitting position. Mm, there were other elements involved in that decision. Such as? She met the silvery eyes without flinching, comfortable with the fact that he was of a soul no greater than her own. Regarding her calmly for a moment, Durbriag allowed a slight smile to spread across his lips. I would not attempt to deceive you, Flaina. You must know that. Hearing him speak her name for the first time, she couldn't help but soften her challenge, if for nothing more than respect. Yes, Lord. He rubbed his trimmed beard absently. To be perfectly honest, I used Agarkala without him knowing it. Being powerful and, after what Vyrie did to him, quite mad, he served as an excellent guardian of the crystal on the dragon's chain. Anyone opening themselves to it, as they might when using magic, would release him. I ingrained a powerful time stop over the stone, as you experienced, which acted as an alarm for the event when someone did take it. You're saying that if Calron had gotten his hands on it instead of Gunther, then me, then Clough, he would have invoked that same time-stop effect by which he would have alerted you and Vyrie anyway? Yes, but from what I've heard of your adventure, you wouldn't have been in very good straits if he had been the one to invoke the time-stop. No, I knew that. A distant thought noted how calmly he and the King of Dragons discussed stopping time, an event of supreme magnitude. I just found it interesting how inevitable the situation was. Meaning? As you said earlier, Gawan met his gaze evenly this time. Destiny foresaw our meeting. Thasgar and Clough stopped their game, and Gon looked up from where he had been watching the fire. Approval settled in the king's expression. Indeed, and you're wondering why. Flaina noticed that though Durbriag would address anyone who spoke to him, he kept the focus of his conversation on Gawan. Not exactly excluding anyone, he wasn't including anyone either, except her chosen. Not directly, anyway. She felt a foreboding on her heart, as if Durbriag, though outwardly benevolent, had his own subtle designs that were to be watched. He is, after all, a powerful dragon ruling others. And yet, here he is, supping and nattering with mortal humans, as if we are to be the best of friends someday. As your consort has already divined, Durbriag nodded deferentially in her direction. There was more to that setting than having one of my children guard an insane entity entrapped within a crystal. The enchanter watched and listened warily, afraid of just how inevitable the outcome of this manhunt had become. Durbriag turned to the campfire, leaned forward where he sat, and reached a hand into the flames, extracting the very same crystal of which they had spoken, now red hot. Settling back on his crossed legs, he held the faceted stone before his mouth and blew a frosty vapor upon it. Seeing his icy breath, Gawan was reminded that, like Vyrie, Durbriag was a dragon, 
a creature of the skies and beyond, who chose to be in human form at this moment. Legend had it, the king of dragons could breathe any of those elements possessed by his subjects. Fire, frost, a sleeping vapor, and others Gawan could not remember. He postulated to seek out any histories concerning dragons when he returned to the Magian Alliance Athenium in Hopetown. As she watched the crystal become cool and dark in Dobriag's palm, Flaina sat forward with dread at what she knew he was about to do. This crystal has crucial importance to me and my children. Its purpose is complex and cannot be shared with those not of dragon kind. For that reason, I chose to have it guarded by one of the brothers of the bronze, the most intelligent children of my realm. He was placed in that cavern more than twenty riads ago and left to rest. When the mountain man happened across the dragon while making his home in an adjacent cave, I decided to allow him to claim the bronze as his pet, despite the brute's primitive demeanor. It provided an additional foil for anyone who might seek the stone. Now that the stone has been sought and found, though how or why I do not know which disturbs me, I seek a different arrangement. I presume that if Vairi were to find this stone, that too would create difficulties? Dobriag stared into the crystal, yet his burning gaze reached far beyond it. Yes, this is why you must look after it carefully. What? After all we've been through, you want Gaewan to risk his life further? There is no risk because Vairi does not know the stone exists. Calron knew. Yes, he did, but I surmise from what I've been told that he knew of the dragon and the stone through hearsay, but not of either's ultimate purpose. Vairi knows of me, however. Though the enchanter did not want to elaborate on her intimate contact with his thoughts, he offered, I don't think your choice of me as guardian is prudent. He regarded Gaewan with something close to fondness. Your concern is noted and verifies for me your trustworthiness. Rest assured that Vairi's interest in you was like the spider to its supper. You have escaped her web, never to be caught in it again. She will find other prey to toy with. The half-elf struggled to rein in her rising fury. Why must Gaewan have to risk his life? No matter how small that risk may seem, on a whim of yours. Seeing the kindness in his expression as he looked upon her made her want to hit something, and she crossed her arms to restrain the urge. Gawan, though not in the least bit bothered with the king's request, for some reason he trusted Dorbriag's intentions implicitly, nevertheless knew better than to intervene when Flaina was unhappy about something. I understand your fear and concern for he whom you have chosen, yet how can I possibly explain all the forces in motion even as we speak? Destiny has brought us together, and, as I'm sure you have learned as a freethinker, 
Such an event is not mere coincidence. Reluctant to admit the truth he spoke, Flana nodded begrudgingly. This was meant to be, in other words. I wouldn't put it in such a harsh light. Yes, we were meant to meet at this time, but freedom of decision is always the individual's right. Otherwise, I would simply drop this stone in Gaewan's lap and be done with it. She blinked in thought and eased muscles she hadn't known were taught. So, what's in the stone? The ghost of a smile passed over his expression. Nothing and everything. It all depends on what Gaewan decides. Flaina opened her mouth to protest. But as far as your concerns, Vyrie is ignorant and quite busy with other matters to fret over an insignificant insect. I ask only that you, your chosen, and your companions keep the stone safe and secret. Flaina tried to decipher those silver eyes, but could not. She knew Gaewan's insatiable and sometimes dangerous curiosity would outweigh any doubts he may have had. He never seemed satisfied with where he stood, always wanting to take that additional step into the unknown. Yet, despite her trepidation, she would never stand in Gaewan's way. For how long? For as long as Gaewan cares to. He turned his unearthly gaze back to the enchanter. Quirking an eyebrow and sliding his eyes between Flaina and Durbriag, Gawan reached over and took the stone from the king's raised hand. I will do as you request for as long as I am able, or as long as you require. After thinking it over, Flaina allowed herself to feel mollified. Gawan was not a man to go back on his promises unless there were no alternatives. On the opposite side of the fire, Clough and Thasgar muttered something amusing between them. (laughs) And my fearsome consort of the enchanter Gawan. Durbriag took her hand in his. I offer my word and my honor on all that I have spoken. Reclining, he rubbed his beard with amusement. The guardians of my palace should be so terrible. You have found an excellent consort, Gaewan. May the powers of those malevolent fail to keep you apart from her. Nor yourself, my lord. (laughs) Hear, hear. Has our enchanter convinced the king of dragons that he is the finest jester among us? Clough shifted around to the fire. I must meet the challenge and make Durbreg laugh. (laughs) <laughs> now, gentle folk, Durbriag grinned and held his palms up. I have not the time to linger whilst you tickle my thoughts. Uh. Gawan was surprised at himself for feeling so comfortable in a demigod's company. Your presence has been an honor, my lord. He stood up with the king. As has yours and your worthy companions, Enchanter Gawan. He placed a hand on his shoulder. Though the cycles of existence cannot be denied, may your golden time never be lost. He gestured to the crystal still in Gawan's hand. Be not fooled by its appearance, my friend. 
Use it wisely. After holding Gaewan's eyes with his own for a long moment, he stepped back and shifted his gaze to each of the others standing around the fire. May the blessings of the gods follow you home. And suddenly, in the wink of an eye, he was gone. After a few moments, everyone realized they were staring into what was now empty space where Durbriag had been standing. Feeling awkward at the abruptness of his departure, indeed it seemed as if he had not been there at all, they exchanged mute glances, each waiting for another to say something to break the spell, all eyes finally coming to rest on Gaewan and the crystal in his hand. Perplexed by the entire day's events and their benign conclusion, far away from where they had started, the enchanter could only look back at his friends and wonder if they had anything helpful to say. Overhead, the leaves rustled in a sweep of wind while the fire popped and crackled cheerfully, sending a few sparks floating skyward. Huh. Shrugging to himself, Thasgar was the first to sit back down. The remaining four settled back in their places around the fire. Despite their lives having been enriched by the company of the demigod King of Dragons, they found themselves facing once again the demands of everyday existence. Your move, Clough. Thasgar shifted one of the pebbles in their game, then rubbed his dark mustache thoughtfully. <laughs> Gan, done with fussing over the fire, went to observe their progress, he usually the better player of the group. The dwarf tugged at his beard in an unconscious imitation of his archer friend as he took in the placement of the impromptu game pieces. That one, your king? Aye. Gawan, meanwhile, rotated the crystal in his hand as he inspected it closely. Rough and unrefined, it possessed a raw beauty that intrigued the eye. He twisted his lips together with unspoken speculations. Use it wisely. Flaina's hand touched his, and he surfaced from his musings to smile at her look of concern. Hand me that empty biscuit pouch, please. He nodded his head at the pile of packs nearby. Allowing her to hold the stone for him, she examined it at arm's length with fluttering eyelids, as if expecting something to pop out of it. He shook out any remaining crumbs from the pouch, tugged experimentally on its strap, then plucked the stone from her hand and dropped it into the soft leather. What are you going to do with it? <sighs> Nothing. I'm going to sleep. Uh. Gan scowled at the array of pebbles and twigs on the square of brushed dirt between Thasgar and Clough. Breach and match in four moves. Right! Clough sprang to his feet and skipped around the fire to where his pack sat. I can't beat Gon's prediction, so I yield. As a reward, I'll take the entire night's watch. I will talk to Mother Forest and see what I can find out about the weather. The entire night? Are you sure? Flaina remembered he had suffered an ordeal separate from the rest of them. Are you feeling yourself? Gawan's second stopped, frowned, and patted himself comically. Why, I think so. Uh, this is my nose, my eyes, my ears, and That my... settles it. Gawan poked wearily among the packs for a blanket. You'll get no more sense out of him. Ignoring Clough's nonsense... Is he all right? 
Recalling his first experiences with channeling power and boyhood experiments in the psychic arts, he remembered that even minor events almost always left him feeling exhilarated and clear of mind. This phenomenon, coupled with a full-blooded elf's natural ability to go long periods without sleep, during spring and summer usually, made Clough's offer trustworthy. Mm, if he feels up to it, then let him. His love brother beamed happily at him, his gray eyes sparkling. If there is something wrong with him, I'm sure it's nothing a swift kick wouldn't correct. <laughs> with a playful and well-practiced glare of reproach, Clough twirled about on one foot. I know of at least one unparalleled ass who would be good at kicking. <laughs> I try and be respectful. Gaywan looked helplessly to the sky. Enough, you two. The half-elf was well aware of the pair's past as players in a traveling minstrel company. Gaywan has not the strength. Not for kicking, anyway. <laughs> I defer to my second. The enchanter fell back and stretched out his legs. You two are impossible. Flaina grumbled for the hundredth time as she reached for bedding among the packs. Thou art too gracious, fairly. <laughs> Clough bowed with the grace of a performer accepting praise from royalty, his long flaxen hair falling in disarray over his brow, then hopped off to gather his weapons. Amidst sitting back up to help her spread out their blankets, Gawan froze oh. and placed a hand over oh. his chest. Forgetting the bedding, she eased back down. Here, love, let me see your chest. The ghost of a prurient smirk passed across his lips. I thought you'd never ask. Hush. She unlaced his slashed tunic and, seeing them completely for the first time in the brighter light of their campfire, grimaced at the deep gashes gleaming from between the loosened, blood-stained bandages across his ribs. How have you carried this? He touched his fingers lightly across the wounds. Oh, I was a little distracted at the first. After that, I got used to the pain, I guess. You're lucky they aren't any deeper. Either way, though, we have to clean them properly, or they'll fester. Gon dropped a handful of clean rags beside her as she gingerly lifted away the first bandage crusted with dried blood. Thanks, Gon. Would you bring me some water? She started tossing soiled bandages into the fire. How? Oh, how? Must you always succeed in everything you do? Gon returned with a water skin, peered over her shoulder at the long claw slash marks and teeth marks, and exchanged a grim look with her. Mm. A small bundle of freshly picked herbs fell to the ground next to them. They looked up to see Clough crouching over a branch in the tree nearby, his mood abruptly sober. I forged for those while supper was being scrounged. You know how to use them. Thou art a blessing. Glad to have some fresh astringents and physics, she had not been happy with the appearance of Gawan's wounds after the first bandaging. Can someone find me a cup to mix this in? Aye. Gon went to fetch one. Thasgar came over and tore the fresh rags into strips while Flaina picked through the herbs. Crushing stems and leaves into the tarnished brass cup Gon provided, she made a pungent paste with a little water, then applied bits of it first to the deepest cuts, then a thin coating over the rest. 
reacting to the remedy, some of it getting into his blood immediately, Gawan raised his head to smile woozily at the half <sighs> I'm feeling all tingly and my head wants to float away. A little magic from me and Clough. The sensations he described were good, indicating the herb's potency. How nice of you fellas to visit. Gawan burbled at Gan and Thasgar as the two helped to Flana. Yes, love. She pressed a gentle hand to his forehead. You'll be asleep in just a moment. <sighs> Chest doesn't hurt anymore. He closed his eyes. Good. It's not supposed to. She finished dressing and bandaging, then pulled a blanket over him. Thasgar touched her shoulder. That's the best patchwork I've ever seen. Could you teach me sometime? She blinked with mild surprise, having not expected a compliment. She had learned the physic art from her mother and had helped dress her father's battle wounds more than once. Why, uh, certainly, Thasgar, though Clup is the expert on her lore. Aye, but a woman's touch is what makes it work. At his side, Gan nodded assent. Mm. Then the two of them went to prepare their own bedrolls. Watching the unlikely pair settle in on their side of the fire, the half-elf realized she had passed some final hurdle in her pursuit of their acceptance. Feeling warmed by their praise and the promise of Gawan's recovery, she smiled to herself as she sat beside the sleeping enchanter, removed her leather gambeson and boots, then settled down with her blanket, using her rolled-up gambeson for a pillow. Overhead, Clough found a comfortable place straddling two tree branches close together and settled in for the night, his bow beside him. A cool breeze swept through the forest as the others wrapped up in their blankets beside the fire and went to sleep. The elf took two dried black roots from a pouch at his belt and chewed them slowly as he casually scanned the surrounding darkness. Day one. Someone called him back from his dreams. Wake up, love. A warm hand shook him gently back to consciousness. He blinked his eyes at the blurred vision of Flana leaning over him and the foggy sky behind her, then sat up with a wince of discomfort from the stiffness in his chest. Oh, pain? No, no. <laughs> it wouldn't dare after the stuff you put on it last night, though... He touched his bandages lightly, then rubbed his face. I feel like I've inhaled a stone. Warm sweetness caressed his nostrils, and he stared with mild astonishment at the tarnished brass cup brimming with hot tea that Flana was waving under his chin. Oh, didn't we run out of spiced tea two days ago? She smiled. <laughs> There's a score of wild spice bushes nearby. Come, take a drink. It'll loosen up your stiff muscles. Ah, <sighs> ah, <sighs> 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 you take such good care of me, love. The warm liquid was a welcome relief to his parched throat. It's the least I can do for the man who rescued me from the marshlands. She sat back, tucked a lock of auburn hair behind a tapered ear, and watched him with her hazel eyes. Are you feeling better this morning? Oh, give me a little while. He squinted through the wisps of steam. 
He noticed that except for the fire and the cooking pot, all their stuff was already packed up. It would be good to get back to civilization and its amenities. Beds with roofs over them, plentiful hot food, for as long as their money held out, and a mostly law-abiding community. Despite its dozens of riads in existence, Hopetown was still considered an outpost, albeit the largest and longest settled, supporting numerous smaller ones out in the reclaimed kingdom of Rue. How long has uh, everyone been up? Since uh, shortly after dawn, we thought it best to let you... Missing her head, a large arrow split the trunk of a small tree not far behind her. She reached for her bow. Club! Thasgar! Wide awake all of a sudden, Gawan slugged down the remainder of the tea, then crawled stiffly over to inspect the projectile jutting out of the split tree. Hmm, crude, almost a spear. Youngling mountain men, I would say. Clough dove for cover. Several, just beyond the lost city archway. Gathering his legs beneath him, he knelt beside Gawan as he notched an arrow in his bow. Giving Flaina a quick nod, they both jumped up and loosed their arrows in the direction of the vine-choked entrance, then ducked in tandem. When no return volley was apparent, Clough raised himself slowly and surveyed the forest. Odd. They've scampered off. Not for long, you can be sure. Flaina was used to mountain men hunting tactics. They're trying to flush us out. I would think the smoke from our fire would tell them where we are. Aye, that's what attracted them. And they've probably figured we didn't walk here. It's a good thing you left our horses invisible. Indeed, else they would have been roasting on spits by now. What do we do now? If we call our mounts, then we play into their trap. Not exactly. Gawan shoveled dirt with his hands onto the remains of the fire. When a hunter flushes foul from the brush, most get away. What are you saying? No time to explain. The point is, we can't fight these louts and win. So call the horses over. Clough notched another arrow. I heard a couple of them grazing nearby this morning. They probably came near when they saw our fire. Gawan stood up, waved away Flaina's offered hand, and stepped through the trees to where a pocket meadow, wet with dew and fog, gleamed in the misty morning's light. The enchanter raised his arms, and four steeds shimmered into view, galloping across the meadow toward him, his elfin horse leading the other three. Still amazes me how you do that, Gawan. Thasgar and Gon stepped up beside Gawan, their arms loaded with some of their packs and saddlebags. I've seen mages do their tricks now and again, but never anyone who could make themselves and animals unseen. Thanks. I've been told my talent is rare. I'm starting to believe it. Air is clear for the moment. Clough and Flaina watched the mountainside around the nearly hidden archway to the underground. Though unable to muster the strength to help Thasgar cinch the saddles, lest he tear open his wounds, Gawan helped Gan tote the rest of their stuff, then tied it onto the horses. Just as they were done... Gawan, behind you! From where he finished adjusting the last saddle, Thasgar looked up, then jumped over and shoved Gawan aside while dropping to the ground. The enchanter had landed on his chest. Cursed lumps of flesh. <clears throat> Gawan sat up painfully. Male. 
His steed peered down at him, its head tilted with question. Run! Take the others with you! Do as I say! Scatter! We will follow! Male pawed the ground and shook his head. Don't argue! We'll be all right! Please! He curveted slightly, then turned and nickered at the other horses, staying his place while they ran off. Damn you, Maledon. I don't care how intelligent you elf horses are. You're just plain stubborn. Be gone! I'll be right behind you. Thasgar crouched close by, his bow ready, and narrowed his eyes at the tree-covered mountainside above them. <sighs> Can't see any other greasy lumps for the size of them. You wouldn't think they could hide so well. A thick, crude rope swung out from a cluster of trees nearby and looped Maledon's neck. <laughs> Gawan unsheathed his dagger and sliced through the rope. Go! Cloth, how many? Where are they? Two, behind you. The lanky archer spun around to see Gawan tangled within two heavy loops of rope. No. Take the others and follow the horses. I'll hold off the bastards. They must have seen me call the horses and think they can make me do it again. You're wounded. He hacked at one strand. Aye, but not dead. They've already marked me as bait, so let's use it. Gawan yanked furiously on the hand-sized knot of the other rope, loosening it, then dropping it and kicking it aside as he glared at Thasgar. Go! Knowing better than to argue with him, the archer resheathed his dagger. Cloth! Flana! Gone! This way! Snatching an arrow from his quiver, he nodded at Gawan and took off running, the others in his wake. Keeping an eye on his friend's retreating backs, the enchanter crouched and scanned the trees nearby, his arms wide, ready for anything. A large arrow buried its point in the ground before him and spattered dirt all around. A youngling mountain man dropped confidently out of a nearby tree, his sizable bow loaded with another crude arrow, which he aimed at Gawan's belly. Wrapped in ragged animal skins and smeared with layers of mud and moss, the large boy, a hand taller than Gawan, bared gaped yellow teeth in a strange grin and shifted his bare feet cautiously forward, his dirty, stumpy fingers curling apprehensively around his bowstring. Keenly aware the youngling's arrow could cleave him nearly in two, the enchanter remained where he was and calmly unsheathed his dagger. From the stink of old sweat and feces wafting his way from the youngling's body, it was easy to tell the brute hadn't bathed. He may have been clever enough to obscure his appearance with dirt and greens, but didn't seem to realize his smell alerted other animals of his presence long before he got near enough to hunt effectively. Just how stupid are you? The youngling nodded to someone behind Gawan, and before he could react, he was caught in several coils of thick hempen. Crab nails! His arms were pulled so close to his side, he could not cut the rope away. Not so stupid as you look. The efficient slipknot pulled tight around him. When another youngling on all fours behind him tried to grab his legs, he spun aside. The second one stood up and glared at him with slightly crossed eyes. The first one pulled his bowstring and again leveled his arrow at the enchanter's gut. Gawan hoped to confuse them somehow by repeating their words, though he could only guess at what they meant. 
The two glanced hesitantly at each other, then nodded to loud whispers from the nearby copse of trees. Godito! Godito? Gawan did his best to appear friendly, as he wondered how many were hiding in the trees. He had to make them think he wasn't afraid, which was not easy when he considered their combined strengths could crush him to jelly before he could get away. That is, if they didn't strangle him with the ropes first. His bonds were getting uncomfortable. The first youngling frowned in serious thought, evidently considering Gawan's situation. The other one picked up a trailing line from Gawan's bonds and yanked on it, then shoved him forward. Godito! He sent a miasma of acrid breath over the enchanter. But just as Gawan considered what to do or say next, he cursed inwardly, knowing the stubborn Maledan had not gone far. Godito! The younglings made to hunt down the elf horse. Fia! The youngling mountain men halted and peered at him expectantly. Godito? Hmm? They grinned, showing their yellow teeth again. Godito? Hmm? Hmm? His chakras tingling, Gawan prepared an enchantment. Upon hearing his noise and the responding reverberation in the air, the one with the bow waved at non-existent insects and nodded at the second youngling who yanked the leash and made sure his captive was securely bound. The enchanter motioned his head conspiratorially, urging the fellow to step closer. Confident their captive could do him no harm, the brute moved near and leaned over him with a befuddled gaze. Gawan smiled triumphantly, the younglings now more vulnerable than they realized. A bright flash burst out around his body, blinding both younglings and sending the first one reeling backward. What was left of the ropes fell to the ground, charred to a cinder. Free of his bonds, Gawan dashed for the edge of the clearing where he guessed his steed waited. Behind him, the first youngling dropped his bow and stumbled around with his hands over his eyes, while the second just stared cross-eyed into space, stunned. Just as Gawan reached the edge of the trees, however, another loop of thick rope sailed through the air, dropped around him, snared his legs, and pulled him down to his knees. Recovering quickly, he hacked through the hempen with his dagger and scrambled to his feet. Blessings of the gods! I'm the only blessing around here! Some more of you need a lesson, eh? He turned to point his blade at two fatter ones running across the clearing with bows over their shoulders and wicked-looking stone axes in their hands. His wound throbbed with soreness, making it difficult to concentrate on any more spells, but the mate to Clough's sword of infinity required very little mental energy. The fresh pair of youngling mountain men raised their axes and charged. Gawan aimed his blade's point at the lead boy's chest as he sent a momentary flicker of thought into the weapon. The short blade flashed out to thirty paces in length, plunged into the youngling's ribs, then flashed back, all within the space of a heartbeat. The boy stumbled and, with utter astonishment, looked down and clutched a hand to his fresh wound spouting blood, then fell forward while his brother halted and glanced around, thinking another attacker was responsible. 
Gawain felt a nudge at his back and turned to smile gratefully at his elf horse, not for the first time glad of the animal's stubbornness. <sighs> Sweet Malé. As he stuck a boot in the stirrups and tried to mount the saddle, pain stabbed through his chest, the torn muscles protesting, and he flailed to keep from falling backward, eventually ending up on his knees again, his hands pressing against his steed's belly to hold him steady. Curses on that Tisha! Throbs radiated across his chest as he stood shakily on his feet. Molly, I need help. Molly knelt on his forelegs to make it easier for Gawain to climb onto his back. Scarcely was he astride when two small trees on either side were cleaved in two by a large swinging axe. The second of the fatter younglings raised his axe to chop on man and horse. Fly, Maladon! His vision swimming with spots of blackness, Gawan gripped his fingers in his steed's mane as they dove into the forest. The angered shouts and grunts of the defeated youngling mountain men fell behind swiftly. Slouching forward, Gawan fought back the oblivion of unconsciousness amidst his pain, while off in the distance he heard the call of friends. Part 3, Enchanter's Lot. The sound plays were written, recorded, directed, mastered, and produced by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Copyright 2022. Character voices for Episode 4 are performed by Richard Hammer, Darcy Aradell Hotelling, Marcel Hammer, and H. The Great and Powerful. The novel and its sequels are available through Amazon.com, on Kindle Books, can be ordered at your favorite bookseller, or can be purchased directly and at best price with additional bonuses from the author by submitting a request to our email. Music for the Harkin Theater was composed and performed by Evan McDonald, Florian Serral, Francesco D'Andrea, Atlas Mason, High Street Music of London and licensed by PremiumBeat.com. Public domain music performances are licensed under Lieber Lieber Creative Commons. More detailed music and performer credits can be requested from the Harkin Theater at Yahoo.com. Sound effects and original foley provided by Cusp Studios and the BBC Library. This was recorded on location in the universe.